Dakota and Lynch come bring God's word to us today. And most of you had the opportunity to meet him and have a battle. do that today. My floor is with him today. They uh, worked with the Scripture Memory Fellowship and had that up. And I'm thankful for that ministry that goes on around the world, encouraging Bible memorization. So, Dakota, forward to what we have. Since I was last here and, and the last time that I was, we looked together at 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, you may remember that we talked about um, the persecution that we face as believers. And the title of that message was, In This You Rejoice. You may remember that verse says, In this you rejoice, your salvation. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. This morning, I wanted to take some time to look with you now at a separate passage of Scripture that also talks about suffering, the hardship that we might face, that we do face, not only as believers, but just as fellow members of the human race, the sorts of trials that we encounter. So if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to look with me at James chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 1 through 4. But go ahead and find chapter 5, verses 10 through 11 as well. And we're going to read this just uh, as one chunk together. So James 1, 1 through 4, and then chapter 5, verses 10 through 11. God's Word says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for your word. Lord, we are thankful that it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It gives us the wisdom that we need, the hope that we need, the comfort that we need, most of all, that it conveys to us the gospel that we need for salvation. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to learn from these words in James today. We pray that through these words you would help us to respond in a biblical way to the sorts of trials and suffering that are, uh, that are ours in this life and that you would encourage us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we opened our Bibles to James 1, uh, you could probably say most of those words from memory because that's a very familiar passage of Scripture, isn't it? Those first few words uh, from James, maybe not quite as common are these 
uh, two verses that we just read from chapter 5. And so, of course, that tells us that in the book of James, we have these two bookends. That's really what he's addressing both at the start of his letter and at the end of his letter, this human suffering and how we as believers should respond to it. One of the things that strikes me is that this passage is somewhat similar to what we encountered a, a couple months ago in 1 Peter. Notice the similarity because in 1 Peter, Peter's writing, he says, this is to the elect exiles of the dispersion. And then in James, he's writing to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. So in both cases, these are letters that are being written to a very broad audience. And in both cases, as these writers are thinking about what to say to such a mixed group, they say, let's start with suffering. Because that, that's something that we all have in common. And so these writers understand that as they're writing to a broad audience, suffering is something that we will all be able to relate to. And James, of course, is a very familiar passage. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. And despite the fact that this is a very, very familiar passage of Scripture, I don't feel like any of us could say honestly that we have mastered the art of counting it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. This is a very hard thing for me to apply. I'm sure that you can relate. And honestly, as I was meditating on this passage of Scripture, one thing that struck me in terms of how I have struggled with this passage over the years, is that he says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Or if you're reading the King James, it says, you know that the trying of your faith produces patience. And I don't know about you, but it almost sounds like James is saying, hey, be encouraged when you face hardship. Because if you face it long enough, you'll become really good at it. <laughs> if you suffer enough, you'll become a very good sufferer. And that's not very comforting to me. I don't know about you. It's almost like when you're a kid and you're studying algebra. And, and someone were to say, well, be encouraged because if you study this long enough and hard enough, and you become good enough at algebra, eventually you'll be able to teach others algebra. <laughs> You know, there are some college degrees that qualify, qualify you only to be a professor in that field. But I don't think that's what James is saying. I don't think he's saying just keep suffering because eventually you'll get used to it. But I think he's saying that the steadfastness that God works in the lives and hearts of those who suffer will have such value to our walk with God in every other area of our lives. There are things that God wants to do in our lives that He only can accomplish within the context of suffering. Let me read to you a quote from the New American Commentary. It says this, James encouraged them to embrace their trials, not for what they were, but for what God could accomplish through them. And I think that's why James is saying you can count it all joy. It's not that we take some strange delight in the suffering. That's, that's not realistic. But we can delight in knowing that God will work all things together for good and that through this suffering, there will be a testimony that is born. And so this morning, as we take a look at this passage of Scripture, I want to examine what I would consider the three components of our human suffering. First, we're going to look at the reasons for our trials. 
then the outcome of our trials, and finally, the proper response to our trials. Let's talk first about the reasons for our trials. If you're going through a hardship right now, uh, it probably falls into one of a few different categories. And the first reason that we might suffer is that we're human. We live in a fallen world where the curse of sin is very evident. And let me just warn you, I'll be sharing a lot of passages of Scripture today, and not just from James. And so you may want to take note of some of these and look at them more thoroughly later. But let me read Ecclesiastes 9, 1 through 2. It says, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. We know that Ecclesiastes was in some way Solomon's reflection on the human experience and the world that we live in. And he says, you know, one of the things I've noticed is that some things just happen to you regardless of how you're living. There are people who live in a very godly way and people who live in a very ungodly way. And certain events, whether that's illness or job problems or marriage problems or extended family problems, whatever it is, these things are just part of the human experience. And I know in a room of this size, some of us are facing health problems. Some of us may be facing job problems. Some of us may be facing problems with our transportation. Whatever it is, we're facing things that are just part of the human experience. And I think it's important for us to recognize that that's par for the course, and we shouldn't be surprised when those types of trials come our way. There's another type of human suffering and that is that sometimes we suffer because we are Christians. And that's really what First Peter was all about a few months ago when we looked at that. He wasn't just talking about general suffering, but he was talking about the suffering that comes to those who take a stand for the truth of the gospel. We see that as well in 2 Timothy 3.12 where Paul wrote, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, in our current culture, for the past couple hundred years in the United States, that's been a pretty rare thing. We haven't had to face any sort of very intense persecution because we follow Christ. But we can see that the pendulum is starting to swing in the other direction. And what does Peter say? He says, don't, don't think it strange concerning that fiery trial. You know, we need to be aware of the fact that as we live according to what is written in this book, there will be a price that we pay socially, perhaps even physically. We know that in many parts of the world, if you choose to follow Christ, you are doing so in peril of life and limb. And I feel more and more that that is getting closer to home. And so Scripture teaches us to anticipate this sort of trial, this sort of persecution. We see that in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share 
Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad that his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So scripture teaches us, even within 1 Peter, that if we're suffering for Christ's sake, we really ought to count it all joy. Because that's some evidence that we're actually following Christ. If we follow Christ or claim to do so without any sort of social consequences, that should be a little bit of a red flag to us. And yet we find throughout Scripture, especially in the book of Acts, that when they faced persecution, they rejoiced. They said, we're, we're being counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. So we suffer because we're human. We suffer because we're Christians. And then sometimes we suffer because of our choices. We learned about that a little bit in Sunday school this morning. For those of you who were with us, we were looking at the life of David and the fact that he made some choices relationally with Bathsheba that had consequences for many years to come. We see that as well, perhaps just as famously, in the life of Jonah, don't we? He received a word from the Lord, and God said, Go to Nineveh, that great people, and preach to them repentance. And Jonah said, No. In fact, the first thing he did was get on a, on a boat headed in the opposite direction. If you look at a map, it was as, almost as if God said, I want you to go to Maine. And he went to Southern California. He went in the opposite direction. And what happened? He got on a boat and there was a storm. And that's when he began to realize that this was a storm of his own making. And so he said, toss me overboard. And they did. He was swallowed by a great fish. And all the time, this was a hardship, a trial that Jonah bore personal responsibility for. And I think sometimes in our lives, it can be helpful to realize that some of the trials that we face may be of our own doing. You know, maybe we're facing financial problems because we signed up for a car payment that we really shouldn't have signed up for. Maybe, maybe we're facing problems at work because we aren't doing a good job of following through with our projects. Maybe we're uh, having marital problems because we're not doing a good job of biting our tongue and speaking graciously. And it can be helpful to be honest with ourselves and with the Lord and, and take responsibility for those trials when they come. Imagine if Jonah just thought, well, this is strange. They weren't forecasting anything but clear weather. I wonder why it's raining. But when he began to realize that this was more than just a storm. He was able uh, to repent. I would encourage you, though, if, if you're looking around you and thinking, you know, I, I wonder, maybe this is something that I've caused. Romans 8.28 uses an important phrase, all things. It says, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the call according to his purpose. The beautiful thing about God's sovereignty is that He can use even the things that we bring on ourselves to ultimately bring glory to Himself and bring blessing to us. And so don't despair in those seasons, but rejoice in what God can accomplish even through those trials. The fourth type of suffering, which I'll spend a little bit of time on, is sometimes the hardest for us to wrestle with. And that is that we suffer because God sends the suffering. Now, I'm sure that um, in this room we all 
have a pretty good understanding of, of what God's sovereignty means. And so we know that any sort of trial that we face, whether that's a, a flat tire on the way home or a job loss next week, ultimately all of those things come to us through the filter of God's sovereignty. Nothing will um, come into your life unless God, first of all, allows that to happen. But sometimes in Scripture we see that God very, very purposefully sends affliction, pain, and hardship into the lives of His children to bring about His good purposes. And it's not just that He allowed it to happen. When we read the book of Job, it doesn't just say that God allowed certain things to happen, but He was somewhat proactive when He said, have you considered my servant Job? And I'm sure if you're Job and you're hearing these various messengers come in over the course of just a few moments with all of this bad news, you can't chalk that up to coincidence or why I'm just facing the things that come to me as a, as a member of the human race. But he, he would have been wise to say, God is doing something in my life. He's bringing hardship into my life very, very purposefully. And I, and I think this is the hardest type of suffering for us to understand for us to be okay with. Because why would God do that? Why would God bring hardship into our life? But could I ask you to look one more time at the verse we just read from James chapter 5. Look at verse 11. He says, We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. As we're facing trials, I think it's so helpful to remember the goodness, the mercy, and the character of God. Remember the words of Philippians when it says, He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Our Heavenly Father is the one who sent His Son to die a gruesome death on the cross. Our God is the one who, according to Scripture, is the Lord, the Lord, the God merciful and gracious. As an old song says, when you can't see His hand, we can trust His heart. And so if you're facing a trial in life and you're saying, you know what, I don't think this is just coincidence. I don't think this is me just being a member of the human race. I don't think I've caused this. I don't think this is because I'm following Christ and there's persecution. But I think that God has placed this thorn in my side and this tear in my eye. Trust in the goodness, the love, and the character of God. Let me read to you an excerpt from Douglas move. This is in the Pillar New Testament commentary. He says, why does God allow the righteous to suffer is indeed one of the most perplexing and difficult questions that God's people can ask. James gives no complete answer. But implicit in what James says is a conviction that the suffering of believers is always under the providential control of a God who wants only the best his people. 
I think that's so important. We might say, I don't know why God is doing this in my life. But I can trust that this is under his providential control and that because that's true, he's doing something important. He's doing something that's worth the pain. A familiar passage of scripture is Acts 1, 6 through 7. Let me read that to you and you may wish to turn there. It says, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. Now just pause for a moment and remember that whatever political things are going on in our country, they give us pause for concern. The Jews were under Roman occupation, which is just about as tragic as it gets politically. This was a very dire time in the nation of Israel. And they were quite excited to think that maybe one of the things Christ was going to do is fix all of that. And yet they get the sense that he's about to leave. And so they say, Lord, before you go, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them in verse 7, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. They were saying, God, is this, is this suffering that we've been experiencing as a nation anywhere near its end? Are you going to put things back as they ought to be? When is that going to happen? And he said, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And I feel sometimes in our lives, that's what we need to hear. Because we're facing something and we're saying, God, is this almost over? I want to know what you're doing. I can't keep doing this for much longer. And, and when will you be wrapping this up? I need to know. And sometimes the answer that God gives us is, it's not for you to know. The times or the seasons of your life that I have fixed by my own authority. But what does Jesus go on to say in verse 8? He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and all Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. God, will you send complete restoration and peace into my life? It's not for you to know, but I'm going to send my Holy Spirit, who will indwell you and empower you to do the work that I have caused and called you to do. So those are some of the reasons that we may suffer. I'd like to talk for a few minutes now about the outcome of our trial. Some of the things that we know from Scripture that God will do, and God may be doing very, very specific things in your life through the suffering that you're facing, but here are some broad strokes that paint a picture of what God often does accomplish through our suffering. The first thing that trials do is they produce spiritual maturity in our lives. We see that right there in the first chapter. Of James. James 1 verse 3 says, You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Romans 5 elaborates on this a little bit and gives us uh, sort of the sequence of events that often transpires. Let's look together at Romans 5 verses 1 through 5. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God for our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith 
into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. As Christians, I think we all understand that steadfastness is important, character is important, hope is important, and we might even pray for those things. But sometimes what we don't necessarily like is the fact that it's through hardship and through fire and through the valleys of life that God brings those things to fruition. Notice the sequence there in Romans 5. He says, suffering produces endurance, and as you go on down, you find that hope is at the end of that journey. And I have found in my life that sometimes suffering is the best way for me to find hope in the promise that someday Christ is going to come back and all of this is going to be wrapped up. Sometimes suffering takes our eyes off of this life and the things of this life and it fixes our gaze on eternity. Maybe you grew up singing this song, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. I think that's a good perspective to have. I think it would be good if every believer said, this world is not my home. But sometimes it feels an awful lot like home when everything's going smoothly, doesn't it? It's easy just to settle in, to enjoy our home, to enjoy our things, to enjoy our jobs. And yet when God sends hardship into our lives, one of the things that he accomplishes is that we, we stop thinking just about today and about our lives and about our priorities, but we look to eternity. That's the second thing that trials accomplish in our lives. They prepare us for eternity. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. Paul writes, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Notice the contrast that Paul highlights in these verses. How does he describe our affliction? He says it's light and momentary. And sometimes I take that a little bit personally. I say, well, it, it surely doesn't feel like it is light. And it doesn't really feel like it's been momentary. It feels like this has been going on for a little while now, God. And so where does Paul come up saying this is light and momentary? He says, no, this is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. The reason that Paul says it's light and momentary is because it is when you compare it to the eternal weight of what God is accomplishing through it. God is using the temporary trials of this life to do something eternally significant and valuable in the life 
that is to come. The third thing that I'd like to share is that trials equip us for ministry. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. When you suffer, God is going to use that to equip you to be a blessing to those who face that same sort of trial. Can you remember a time when you were going through something and you were comforted because you were, you were blessed to meet someone else who said, I understand what that's like. Let me tell you about the time that I walked through that valley. I can remember a time, you know, that we worked with a ministry called Scripture Memory Fellowship. And we met a complete stranger one day as we were traveling who came up. And we realized that this person has been facing trials that are an awful lot similar to what we've been facing. And God just put this person in our lives to provide that word of encouragement to us. To help us realize that we're not alone. Because one of the most frightening things, one of the most discouraging things is to be walking through a valley and to think that no one else has ever been here before. And God can use your trial to make you that voice of comfort and encouragement to those who are facing similar trials. So as we walk through the valley, God will use that to produce spiritual maturity, to prepare us for eternity, to equip us for ministry. And so in view of these things, how should we respond to trials? Well, James sums it up pretty well. He says, count it all joy. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. But um, let me get very practical and say one of the things that you can do when you're facing trials is to ask God for wisdom. We see that right there in James 1. We didn't read it, but verses 5 through 6 say, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Now that's a verse that we quote all the time. At least I do if I'm praying about a decision and I don't know what to do. I'll bring this to God and say, Lord, your word tells us that we lack wisdom. We can ask of you. And I think that's very appropriate to use this verse in that way. But I think it can be very encouraging to remember that what James was talking about in the immediate context is the suffering that we face. And he's telling these believers who are facing uh, the challenges of life, if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Maybe what you're asking God to give you wisdom about is what kind of trial you're facing. We talked about the different types of trials. Maybe it would be good for you to just think about what God might be trying to do through this situation. Ask God to refine your faith, to cultivate spiritual maturity, to do all of the things that we've been talking about in your life. And what I've noticed is that oftentimes when you're facing a trial, you need a lot of wisdom because seasons of trial are also seasons of decision in many cases. You're trying to think about when you should call that person back, what you should say, what doctor you should follow up with next. These are areas in which we need God's wisdom. 
And James says, if you lack it, ask. He goes on later in the same book and he says, you don't have because you don't ask. And so when we're facing trials, it's appropriate, it's necessary to ask of God. And he says here, God gives generously to all without reproach. Verse 6, but let him ask in faith with no doubt, and the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven with the wind and tossed. So ask God for wisdom. Next, when you're facing a trial, one of the ways that you can respond is by looking to Jesus. I love Hebrews 12.3. It says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Are you facing a trial? Consider him. Consider Christ. He, as it says in Isaiah 53, was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He's not unable to sympathize with our weakness. We see that in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 15. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So look to Christ. Remember that the suffering that he endured was far greater than the suffering that we could ever endure. And thirdly, if you're facing a trial, lean on the body of Christ. And that sounds almost cliche. You probably knew that already. Just like you knew what James 1, 2 through 3 says. But this is another area where even though we know it, we really don't do it very well. We don't lean on the body of Christ as we ought to lean. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. I don't believe this is descriptive of the church today in many cases. When one member suffers, we don't always suffer together. And that's because, for the most part, we don't let each other know that we're suffering. We smile. Someone says, how was your week? We say, it was good. How was yours? And we know that that's not true. We know that we're hurting. But it's okay to let others know that you're suffering. In fact, it is biblical, and it is very important to let others know when you're suffering. Now, I'll be very transparent and say that a few years ago, my wife and I decided to put this to the test because we were going through a tough season of life. And for a long time, we did what we've always done, and we just went about our business. We, we made as if everything was okay, and you know what? It wasn't. And it got to a point where we were crushed in spirit. And I said to my wife, we need to start letting some people know that we're not okay. And we didn't uh, go to the highways and hedges, but we met with some close friends and said, we just need you to pray for us. We know this is not a situation that you can fix, but here's where we are, and here's where we're hurting. And you know what? They didn't fix it. They didn't have any magic words of encouragement to share. But you know what happened? We started to heal. We started to be able to carry that weight 
a little bit more effectively because we were sharing it. And then when we got together with some of those same friends, you know what they, they stopped saying? They stopped saying, well, how was your week? They started saying, how are you doing? And they knew. I don't know what would have happened if we had said, we're, we're just going to continue bottling this up. And so I would encourage you, if you're to that point, and even if you're not, before you get to that point, let this church do what God has equipped it and called it to do. Meet with your pastor, meet with your, your friend, meet with the person that you've gotten to know here and say, you know, I really could use prayer because we're in a hard spot. We're in a valley that's been lasting for a little while now. And that person's not going to be able to fix it, but they're going to be able to care and pray and follow up and bring that before the Lord on your behalf. Now, maybe you're in a place where you're saying, praise God, I'm not in that spot right now. I'll bear that in mind when I get there. God also calls us to be the body of Christ. Not just to lean on the body of Christ, but to be the body of Christ. And so look for opportunities to be a voice of encouragement, to listen, to ask someone how they're doing and be prepared for an honest answer, to pray for someone in their hour of need. Romans 12, 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So ask God for wisdom. Look to Christ. Lean on the body of Christ. And finally, I would encourage you, cling to the promises of God. Cling to the promises of God. One of my favorite verses that I go to again and again is in Psalm 119, verse 92. It says, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. That's one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about memorizing Scripture. We can see from the psalmist's testimony that having God's word in your heart comes in quite handy. When you're facing trials and tribulation, he says, God, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished. So delight in God's word. Cling to the scripture. Cling to the promises of God. Here are just a few that you can write down and take with you. James 1, through, uh, James 1 verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Can I encourage you this morning? There is a light at the end of the tunnel. And no, it's not a train. The Lord will give the crown of life to those who endure. That's what the scripture teaches us. And so be encouraged. 1 Corinthians 10.13, this is another promise that you can take with you. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What this teaches us is that God has his hand on the thermostat. And he's not going to allow things to get one degree hotter than they need to be or one degree hotter than you can bear. A while back, I had the opportunity to watch someone who was an expert glass blower. It's very fascinating to watch. But one of the things they talked about is this furnace can only be so hot. That furnace is a little bit 
cooler. And then once we make the glass, we, we shape it, we make it what it needs to be. And then we put it over here, and for so many hours, it needs to be at this temperature. And I begin to realize they know what they're doing. And it's as hot as it needs to be for exactly as long as it ought to be. And things are turned off when it is appropriate. I think God is even more attentive to the situation that you're in, to the heat that you're facing, and he's in control. Another promise that you can cling to is Matthew 28, verse 20. Christ says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's a fourth man in the fire, and his name is Jesus Christ. He is with you, and he will never leave you nor forsake you. I think one of the most precious promises that we have as we face the trials of life is that God will ultimately put an end to the suffering. It may seem that this has been going on for some time, and maybe there is no apparent end in sight. Maybe it seems to you like this is the new normal, and it's going to be the new normal for as long as you walk the face of this earth. And yet 1 Peter 5.10 says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. In closing, I'd like to read a familiar but very beautiful passage of Scripture. This is Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. I invite you to turn there, and we'll conclude with this passage. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy. Let's pray together. Father, what comfort we find in these words. That you are bringing a new heaven and a new earth. And these words are trustworthy and true. And yet, Father, we confess that so often we lose sight of these promises. We lose sight of the fact that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And so, Father, we thank you this morning for the reminder from your word of what you will accomplish, not only in the here and now through our trials, but for the eternal weight of glory that you are bringing to fruition. We pray this in Jesus' name.